Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Today we come to the final track of this summer sermon series that is Finding God on Your turntable. Um, it's not iPod. It's not, we're not streaming on Spotify. We're, just, we're going vinyl this year. We've had six tracks previously. We started off with the Beatles Revolution. Then we had the Rolling Stones. Shine no, we started off with Jimi Hendrix. All along the Watchtower. That's right. Then the Beatles Revolution. Then, then uh, Stones uh, Shine a Light. And then Neil Young, Heart of Gold. We all love Neil. And then Cat uh, Stevens, we're on the peace train. And last Sunday, ZZ Top. Jesus just left Chicago. Uh, now, I'm not going to even bother to have you guess <laughs> who the final artist is, because you already know. Who is that artist? Of course it is. Of course it is. Of course it is. Um, th- this is the fourth time that, that Brother Bob has showed up in Finding God on your iPod. That ties in with Dave Matthews' band. And, but still, behind you too, that has made five appearances. So if you think you know that, that I've used Dylan more than anyone, that's actually not the case. Um, so what to say? I don't, you know, don't need to say too much. What do you say about Dylan? Who do you compare Dylan with? Maybe the Beatles. I mean, that would be one way of thinking about it. Uh, I like those. I should say we should compare him to what? To who? To Rudyard Kipling, William Yates, William Faulkner, Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Why? Because they are all Nobel laureates winning the Nobel Prize in literature. Uh, I remember when we were walking the Camino in 2016, that day from Astorga to uh, Camino del Rabanal. Remember that day? That was a significant day in many respects. Thirteen and a half mile days, kind of hard for Perry at the end. I tried to carry her pack, be real noble, and she would have none of that. She was like, just like that. Okay. And, uh, but we got, we got into the albergue and all that, and I turned on my phone, and it's like, all these texts, 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 that Bob Dylan had won the Nobel Prize for literature. You'd think I'd have won the Nobel Prize. People were like, congratulations. I was like, well, thank you very much. It was something of a of a uh, verification, uh, an affirmation of what we Dylan fans have known all along, that when you think about Dylan, it's not just the music. He really does belong in the category of literature. And you're not just comparing him to the Beatles. You're comparing him to Milton and Shakespeare and those kind of poets. So what song? What song? Last year, Dylan made an appearance last year, the last the last uh, song, uh, My Back Pages. That would be an example of some of Dylan's complex poetry. Many verses, complex rhyming schemes, crimson flames tied through my ears, rolling high and mighty traps, pounced with fire on flaming roads, using ideas as my maps. We'll meet on edges, soon said I, proud neath heated brow. Oh, I was so much younger then. I'm older than, I'm, I'm so much older than, I'm younger than that now. And, you, you know, you, do, you write 200 songs like that and they'll give you a Nobel Prize for literature. But Dylan also knows he writes simple songs too. There, there's a certain genius to be able to write a simple song. Just a very simple song. And so I have, I'm picking one of his simple songs 
from the classic rock era, uh, from 1973. It's the song, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Yeah, it's a good song, which comes from the movie. Dylan did the soundtrack for the Sam Peckinpah Western, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He did all the music, and this song is, is in that film. I remember, I remember when I first heard it. I was 14 years old. I was a freshman in high school, and I was on the basketball team. And because of construction was going on, uh, the freshman basketball team had to have practice at 6 a.m. Oh, man, that was a test of commitment. I mean, I loved basketball, but, you know, 6 a.m. basketball? Uh, but, but I did. And I remember that clock radio going off. Click. And it was, it was on KY-102. That was my radio station. Click, KY-102 comes on, and it was the song, Knocking on Heaven's Door. This was before I was a hardcore Dylan fan, but I thought, I like that song. Simple little song, but I, I kind of like that. So I remember, in fact, the very first time I ever heard that song, uh, back in 1973. Um, it's, it's simple. It's two verses. Two verses, and then with like a, like a nursery rhyme, knock, knock, knocking on Heaven's Door. That's it. Two ver- only 50 words. In those two verses. I mean, it's a very simple song, but it invokes an image and a feeling and a sense. I, like I said, there is a certain genius to writing a simple song. It's about death. It's about heaven. Uh, it's been covered. Who's covered? Who, who has done this song? Everybody. I mean, if you're, an, if you're a recording artist, you at some point have recorded this song. People like uh, Eric Clapton, The Grateful Dead, Guns N' Roses did a very famous one, uh, Warren Zevon, Freddie Fender, Avril Lavigne, Television, U2, Phil Collins, Bruce Springsteen, Mark Knopfler, to name a few who have covered this song. Um, in 1997, uh, Bob Dylan performed in front of 300,000 people. 300,000 Catholic youth in Bologna, Italy. It was World Youth Day in the Catholic Church. And the Pope, of all people, the Pope invited Bob Dylan to come and sing. And so, you know, the Pope's up there on the, up there on the, on the stage and, and, and up on the, the platform. And Dylan's there. And, and Dylan did three songs for 300,000 Catholic youth. Bologna, Italy, 1997. He, he did uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. He did Forever Young. The third song was knocking on heaven's door. So this song has been played for the Pope. <laughs> I just there and there's 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 Bob meeting uh, Pope John Paul II, 1997. So uh, that's a little bit of introduction about the artist in the song. Let's listen to it. It's a very short song. It's like two and a half minutes long. Uh, Bob Dylan's knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. 
take this badge off of me. I can't use it anymore. It's about a, a dying deputy in the American West. Mama, take this badge off of me. I can't use it anymore. It's getting dark, too dark to see. I feel like I'm knocking on heaven's door. Mama, put my guns in the ground. I can't shoot them anymore. That long black cloud is coming down. I feel like I'm knocking on heaven's door. That's the whole song. That's it. It's a pretty simple song. Um... Dylan has been singing about death his whole career. Closing song on his first album, See That My Grave Is Kept Clean. And then I just kind of glanced at his catalog this week and just, 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 just I mentioned a few uh, songs that really are centered around the theme of death. Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, Going, Going, Gone, Isis, Romance and Durango, Black Diamond Bay, Trying to Get to Heaven, Not Dark Yet, Cross the Green Mountain, Tempest, Ten Angel, and his last song on his most recent album, Roll On John, which is a song about uh, the death of John Lennon. And so he's been singing about knocking on heaven's door for a long time. Well, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he talked about knocking on heaven's door. Philippians chapter 1, I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but I will continue to be bold for Christ. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So knocking on heaven's door is a song about a man as he lay dying. It's a very simple song, and yet there is something profound about it. You hear a man 
in the process of dying, describe it. It's getting dark, too dark to see. That long black cloud is coming down. The song is written from first-person perspective. A dying man is speaking to us. Now, unless we are really intent on being honest with ourselves, we can play a little game where we think that uh, death is something that happens to other people. Um, The great Christian thinker and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard thought it was one of the most difficult things a human being could do is to honestly face the fact of their own mortality, that someday they will die. God is immortal, and God alone. I mean, this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that God alone possesses immortality. In fact, the word immortal or immortality occurs five times in the New Testament, always a reference to God. We are not immortal. We are mortal. We're subject to death. We're all knocking on heaven's door all the time. Every one of us. Every one of us. We're all knocking on heaven's door all the time, and someday the door will open. Americans, though, are notorious for putting death out of sight and out of mind. This is maybe a, this is a more recent phenomenon. It's really a 20th century phenomenon. Many, many Americans have never seen someone die. This would not have been typical. This would not have been common in previous ages and in previous other cultures. Most people had seen people die. But very few, I mean, a lot of people don't see people die. We, we keep that at a distance, especially, especially Americans and especially baby boomers. Uh, baby boomers. I'm, a, I'm one of those. Uh, baby boomers, they invented youth culture. Uh, youth culture did not exist before the baby boomers, where there was like a, a focus on it. And it was the best thing to be. And, and baby boomers, in one sense, made an idol of youth. And the baby boomers have told themselves, you know, that they're never really going to get old. <laughs> Certainly, you know, they're never probably going to die. But they may die, they may die but they're not going to get old. That's what baby boomers tell themselves. Um, Baby boomers are now 55 to 74. That's that demographic window, 55 to 74. It's baby boomers. Uh, I went to the ZZ Top show uh, last Sunday night. It was a great show. Uh, but I looked around and I thought, dang, everybody qualifies for the senior discount. <laughs> I, it was a bit shocking, actually. Well, we live our lives on the threshold of death. And we never know when we'll cross that threshold. That's part of the mystery of life. That we, we think it's, you know, we, it's, it's way off. It's not now, it's not today, but we don't know. Sometimes you can anticipate the approach of death. Other times it comes very unexpectedly. The capacity that the human being is gifted with by God to be not only aware but self-aware, self-reflecting. So that I'm aware of my awareness. I can make this move where I can contemplate my own contemplation. Be aware of my own awareness. That capacity to be aware of our awareness or self-aware also is related or maybe the same capacity to also be aware of God. Oh, I'm aware of God. And we can worship God and seek God. 
But the capacity to be self-aware and God-aware seems to come with the price of also being death-aware. My cat, Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, has awareness. It, it's aware when its bowl of food is empty. Knocks on the door. And I'm like, okay. It's aware, but I don't really think the cat is aware of its awareness. I don't think the cat sits around and has that existential crisis about, I'm a cat. What does it mean to be a cat? Am I a good cat? I don't think it does that. Um, and it is not aware that it's going to die. It will. The cat has, if you think of it this way, the blessed state of not knowing. My cat lives in ignorant bliss. Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, but that's not humans. We have to deal with the existential dread of the awareness of our own death. Now, what we can do is we can just put it off. We can just shove it out of mind. But I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's wise. Rather, I think what we need to do as Christians is understand that this is precisely where the gospel of Jesus Christ makes such a bold claim. The gospel of Jesus Christ claims that what happens at the death of Christ is that Christ descended into death, but not as a captive, not as a victim, not as one that could never escape the clutches of death. Christ descended into death to destroy death. Death swallowed Christ, but death cannot digest divinity. And Christ being raised from the dead is not just a happy ending to a particular story. It's the announcement that Christ has triumphed over death. And that Christ is not merely raised, although that is true, but Christ now has filled death with his self. Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. So that to enter into death is to encounter Christ. Do you find some comfort in that? I hope you find a lot of comfort in that. This is what Paul has taught. That's why Paul can use language like, for me to live is Christ. I've been baptized into Christ and I live by his life. And to die? Gain. Gain. Because... I will not be in death. I, I will go through the process of what others would describe as dying, but I will not be dead. I will be in Christ. I will not be in death. I'll be in Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is to be even more in Christ. It's gain. And that's why the Apostle Paul was loath to use the term die or death for believers. He would say they have fallen asleep. There's a kind of slumber because it anticipates a further awakening but he didn't want to speak of it as, as the, the, the final dissolution, some grand end to something. So he speaks of them simply as being asleep. So that now to enter into death is to encounter Christ himself. We enter into the light of the glory of Christ. So Paul says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. Not the final step. It's not the final step or the final stop. It's not the final stop. We die, we're with Christ. That's the, it's not the final stop. The final stop is the restoration of all things, new heavens, new earth, resurrection, a fully physical, uh, I don't understand how it works completely or barely at all, but I accept the witness 
that is given to us by Christ and His apostles, that there is at the end a resurrection and a renewing of all of creation that we're called to participate in. But in the meantime, we're with Christ. And that's not a bad thing. It's It's a nice rest stop. It's a nice place to be while we await for that which comes next. Jesus speaks of it, in fact, as paradise. A few years ago, I dreamed my own death. That evening, I had been reading the book of Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, and I had some questions. It's a difficult book. I had some questions. I wanted some clarification. I thought I was on the right track in trying to understand what Paul was saying, but I wasn't sure, and I wanted some clarification, and I was just thinking to myself, it'd be nice if I could just ask Paul. You know, it'd be nice if I could just talk with Paul, just have a conversation, get him to clarify this for me. Of course, that's a ridiculous thing, but that's what I was thinking. Went to bed, went to sleep, had a dream. I dreamed that I was in the emergency room of a hospital. People were frantically working over me. I don't know what had happened. Something, something dire had occurred. And I gathered from the dream that I appeared to them to be unconscious, but I was quite aware of what was going on. And they were frantically trying to save my life. And then I heard one of the doctors say, he's not going to make it. And that really hit me hard. I thought, oh, but I want to make it. You know, the problem with a dream is you don't know you're dreaming. You say you know, but you don't. I had another dream. I'll finish this one second. I had another dream, and I was dreaming. I said, I was, I, well, I, I had this thought. I was just thinking one day, and I thought, you know, how do you know if you're dreaming or not? Well, I know I'm not dreaming now, and then I woke up. That's the problem. And it's like, oh, how do you know? So, so, so I don't know I'm dreaming. I'm, I'm in my dream, but I don't know I'm dreaming. I'm dying. And they say, he's not going to make it. I hear him. I think, oh, I want to make it. I don't want to die. I, I want to do more. I don't want to die. And that, that, that uh, and I kind of thought maybe they were wrong. But then I felt death. I felt myself dying. And, and there was a moment of panic. I thought, oh, this is the end. Oh, the end. But then, but then something kicked in. Wait a minute. No, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus conquered death. And that brought some peace. But then in my dream, I died. And what happened was it got dark, too dark to see. The long black cloud did come down. And just, and just, it was dark, 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 dark. And then I was sitting on a beach. The next thing I knew, I was on a beach. I was wearing a, a long, kind of off-white beige robe. I guess I didn't earn a pure white robe. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just telling a dream. That's all I know to say. <laughs> This long robe. And I was on this beach. It was idyllic. You know, no one else was around, but it was, you know, it was just perfect temperature, nice breeze, the surf, the clouds, the palm trees. It's your picture of an island paradise. And I was, I was, I don't know why, but I was, there were some nice smooth pebbles, stones that I was kind of just stacking. And I was just completely at peace perfectly content, absolutely happy, not in a hurry to do it, just, you know, all right, it's all right. And then I saw a figure coming down the beach from a great distance. And I couldn't recognize them, but I just saw this little figure, and I knew exactly. I just knew it was the Apostle Paul. 
And, you know, he took his time. and no, no, we, I wasn't in a hurry. And he walked up to me and he said, he didn't introduce himself because I knew who he was and he knew I knew who he was. He just said, oh, I understand you want to talk with me. I said, yeah. And I asked him about my theological question about this book that he'd written 2,000 years ago, this letter. And he, he clarified it for me, told me what he meant. And then I had one more question. I said, is this a dream? And he said, of course it is, but it'll do for now. And I woke up. And I find that a very interesting dream. I had a conversation with the Apostle Paul. Of course, I really didn't. Or did I? I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim I did. I wouldn't claim I didn't. And I asked this question, is this a dream? Now, you could, you could take that as, am I in fact really actually just lying in my bed and in a moment I'm going to wake up? But I don't think that, that's not what I meant in the dream. In my dream, I thought I was dead. And I thought that death was like a dream. Because I knew that if I was dead, that meant my body was somewhere, right? It wasn't what I, I knew my body was somewhere. It's going to be in a morgue, it's going to be in a casket, it's going to be in the ground, it's going to decompose. But I'm not in that body, I'm absent from that body, so what is this? Is this a dream? I said, is this a dream? And Paul said, of course it is, but it'll do for now. I wouldn't build a whole lot of theology on my dreams, but I wonder if that's not something like what it is. It's not the final state. It's not the resurrection. It's a dream. But how do you know if you're dreaming? It can be an awful lot like the real thing. Is this a dream? Of course it is. But it's all right for now. It'll do for now. And it seemed to do just fine. You say, well, how long are we going to have to wait? I mean, how long you got to sit on that beach? A hundred years? A thousand years? Ten thousand years? A million years? Well, I don't know that it works that way. That you're, you're just thinking that time is, is not relative. Brother Einstein will help you out there. It's relative. And maybe it's like this. This is pure speculation, but I can tell you're interested, so I'll speculate. Maybe, let's say, let's say that, that I wasn't dreaming, but that I had died, but my experience was I was on a beach and I have a conversation with Paul, and now I'm waiting for the resurrection, and then the resurrection happens and we're thrust into this next phase of being. And I, they asked me, how long were you on that beach? I said, I think about half a day. It was an afternoon. I was there for an afternoon. What if it turns out a million years had passed? But my experience was I was there for about half a day. It was a good day, had a nice day, talked to Paul, just enjoyed the sunshine and the beach and the surf, and then I, and then I, then I was back in new creation. And isn't that funny? I, I, I died just right before the new creation. Nope, nope, you were dead for a million years. Really? Huh, time flies. Could very much be something like that. I'm speculating, of course. But I'll say this, philosophical secularism is built on a dogma that there are no other worlds. It's locked in an empiricist prison. And it says, if I can't see it, if I can't hear it, if I can't touch it, if I can't smell it, if I can't taste it, it can't exist. 
Well, that's, that's fundamentalism gone awry. Religion, on the other hand, knows, not, not with empirical senses, but it knows with the heart. It knows with the heart that there are other worlds. It knows with the heart that there are other worlds. It knows, but it's not, it's not this knowing, it's this knowing, but it is a knowing. It is a form of knowing, but it's not locked in the prison of empiricism. It knows by the heart because it hears the music of that distant land. It sees what cannot be seen in the heart unless the heart becomes dull and the heart becomes hard. Unless we are conditioned to say, oh, you can't trust your heart. You say the heart can be deceived. Of course the heart can be deceived, but the heart can also be trained. The senses can be deceived too. That something can be deceived doesn't mean that it isn't a path to knowledge. Senses can be deceived, but they can be trained. Heart can be deceived, but it can be trained too through proper formation. And then we begin to know that there are other worlds and they are, they are real. And they're, they exist. Um, religion knows these things. As, so don't dismiss what your heart knows. Now see, that, that's, that's, that's Voltaire and that's you know, Thomas Paine and that's Nietzsche and others coming along and saying, you can't trust your heart. Say, oh, shut up, of course I can my heart is trained in Christ, and, and my heart is not hard. My heart is not dull. I can trust my heart. And there's things like, as, as Blaise Pascal said, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. And just because reason doesn't understand it doesn't mean it should be dismissed. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. So in one sense, there's no such thing as death. In one sense. I mean, in my dream, I, was, I came to death. The long black cloud is coming down. It's getting dark, too dark to see. And then, but there wasn't. I didn't go to death. I went to a beach. <laughs> There's no death, but only in one sense. Only in one sense. Those that remain in the previous world, you know, we've all had people that we love die. And we experience the separation. We experience the sorrow. We experience the grief. So in one sense... Death is nothing, but only in one sense. Paul tells us that to be away from the body, that means death, is to be at home with the Lord. That's language he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from the perspective of the one who dies, it seems that death is hardly a thing at all. It's just a transition. Uh, but of course, death is real. And the life that we now have and that we now know will someday come to an end. And all of that matters, and that counts for something. In Christ, we are delivered from the fear of death. Okay? That's what they tell us. The Christ has delivered us from the bondage of the fear of death. But that doesn't mean we are dismissive of the significance of our lives that we are living right now. In fact, to encounter Christ is to, in death is to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So there, it's, not, it's, it's apparently not all just sitting on a beach. There is at some point a summons before the pure light of Christ to have your life truly analyzed. Because now we live in, 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 in all kinds of shadows and shades of self-deception. I think I know my life, but when I stand in the pure white light of Christ, then I will know my life. 
this is the ultimate performance evaluation. <laughs> we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body. That's also in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, so the psalmist prays a wise prayer. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Teach us to number. Because, see, I don't want to play that game where all my, 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 num, my days are numbered infinitely. I'm never going to die. No, someday I'll die. And so I number my days. I think about it. I think, okay, I'm, I'm passing through life. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I know I'm not going to live to be whatever. I mean, you know, the outer bounds. I mean, the out, I mean, it's, you know, the oldest person alive at any given moment, they're always like 117, 118. I doubt I'll live that long. But I know I'm not going to live 150. I know I'm not going to live. Someday I'm going to die. So I'm numbering my days. Psalmist says that's, that's, that's the development of a heart of wisdom to number your days. Now, as I number my days, as I look, I can't number, I can't number forward because I don't, you know, you don't know. So, no. But I can look back and number. As I, as I look back and number my days, I find that my life falls very neatly in 15-year segments. The first 15. Birth to 15. That is, we'll call that childhood. And it's really about two things. Growing and learning. Physically growing, but then also mentally growing by learning. During those first 15 years of my life, my childhood, I learned to walk. I learned to talk. I learned to read. I learned to write. I learned to tie my shoes. I learned that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. I learned some multiplication tables. I learned that I liked basketball. I learned to make some friends. It's just learning. Then we come to the second 15-year segment of my life, 15 to 30. Whew! That was a busy time. That was, that was the season of beginnings. Everything, beginning, 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 beginning. When I was 15, I met Jesus. That was a beginning. When I was 16, I met Perry. That was a beginning. And it needed to be in that order, by the way. Because BZ... Before Jesus, Perry would not have liked. <laughs> I know Perry. She would not have liked that guy. So I began with Jesus, and then I began with Perry. And then when I was 21, we were married. And we were 22, we had Caleb. There's Caleb. And, uh, and, then, and, then, and then 22 and a half started the church. Woo that was, what a time. I mean, in the space of 18 months. Exactly. In the space of 18 months, I became a husband, a father, a pastor. Whew, try that. Try that sometime. And then it was that beginning, you know, then it's, you know, 23, 4, 5, 6, up to 30. That was, you know, the beginning stages of word of life and a family. And it was hard. It was exciting. It was exciting, but it was hard. Struggle. We were poor. We didn't have any money. And all that time. But it was beginnings. Then the third segment. 30 to 45. Don't this, I'm not saying this is your, you're saying, oh my, no, this is, as I, as I was numbering my days, I noticed, oh, it falls, it works like that for me. Yours will be maybe different. And then 30 to 45, that was, that was achieving. That was success. 
That was the church getting big. And, and we, we moved in here when I was 37. God, 37 years old, Perry. Moved in here, in this, this big place. So it was, it was a very, it was a good time. It was also a dangerous time. Success can be dangerous. It can be dangerous in a lot of ways. But one of the ways success can be dangerous is you think it's the end. You think, okay, this is it. This is, it. This is what life is all about. And I started off, you know, it was hard. And then, then started achieving. And now, you know, the growing and it's big and all that. And ta-da, I've arrived. And then you just, like, try to wait out the clock. And just stay on top. Just wait out the clock. It wasn't the end. It was not the end at all. Well, it was the end. It was the end of the first half of life. But it was by no means the end at all. In fact, it was the end that was going to be followed by a new beginning. 45 to 60. 45 to present. 45 to right now. This was the season of rethinking just rethinking I'm 60 years old just pay attention you'll get it alright so I know it's shocking I find it shocking I do find it shocking where did 19 go I, every day of my life I'm looking in the mirror for that 19 year old I go where where I can't find it 45 to 60 though 45 to 60 that was rethinking that was a new, that was the season of the spiritual transition, the theological shift, all of that. That's the story I tell in my memoir, Water to Wine. Some of you have read it, others of you lived it with me. And so I don't need to talk a lot about that because that's, that's what's been most recent. But you know what? I know that's complete. That also was a very challenging season. It was, it was, it was two things at once, Perry. It was exciting and painful. Exciting and painful. Um... But now here I am, 60. And so I'm thinking, I'm not, I got to speculate, I got to look ahead a little bit. What about the next 15, 60 to 75? What about that? What I, what I want to do? Well, I, I want to I continue to pass the word of life. So those of you that were hoping that I was going to announce my resignation, too bad, you're stuck with me. Um, <laughs> no, I want to keep, keep pastoring word of life. I want to keep conducting prayer schools. I want to keep writing books. I've got, ooh, I've got a book in me that's, that's got to come out pretty quick. I mean, I've got, I've got a book coming out in December, The Unvarnished Jesus, but I've got a book that has to be written. i got the title, What Can We Do When Everything's on Fire? I want to write that book so bad, but you know, in, in due time. So I know I want to do those sorts of things, but here's the thing. I want to do so from a deeper, more contemplative, more compassionate place. I think what I'm saying is during this next stage, I want to try to become a true elder. I could say it also. I want, to, I want to, in some ways, I want to become like my dad. My dad was a true elder. I mean, and, you know, he, was, he became wise and kind and compassionate. And I, I want to try to walk in those steps and do that. That's, I feel like that's the assignment. So I want to go for a long walk and think about it. I want to go for a long walk and pray about it. I want to go for a long walk and get ready for it. In 2016, Perry and I walked the Camino de Santiago Frances from Saint-Jean-Pied de Port-France to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. 
blistered our feet and healed our soul. It was good for us. And so tomorrow, we're going to leave, get over to Paris, get over to Saint-Jean, and by Thursday, we'll be crossing the Pyrenees, walking 500 miles. Lord willing, you've got to say Lord willing because, you know, it's not easy. But it's what I know I need to do. So pray for us. Pray for us. We'll come back. We'll be back. We'll be back. You'll be fine. You've got a good, got a good church here, good people, good pastors. Well, you'll be fine. We'll be back to celebrate our 38th anniversary. And maybe Jesus will talk to me on the way and I'll tell you what he said. I think he probably will. We'll see. Uh, but now what's, what it's time to do is to come to the table where we find the gifts of eternal life. I've been talking about knocking on heaven's door, a sermon on death. This is as close as I got to preaching a sermon on death. I think it's a good one. Um, but remember what Jesus says. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so everyone is invited to the table where Jesus offers in the form of bread and wine his flesh and blood that conveys eternal life. Amen. Stand with me. Let's confess our Christian faith and then together come to the table of the Lord and receive the gifts of Christ. Confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth.